We are going to study, we're going to keep going in Luke. Uh, I'm hoping we can go through, the plan is to go through up to Luke 9 as we get into September. There'll be, I know there's too many words on the screen for some of you in the back um, or some of you like me who carry my reading glasses around. It's a little bit too far. I get that. Um, I'm also trying to show more scripture than anybody teaching you a sermon prep class in seminary would recommend. But why, the reason why I'm doing it this way is I'd like us to focus and saturate in the Scripture. I'm not going to read through everything up there. My hope is that you'll either use your phones to follow it yourself. You may have a different version. This is New King James. Or you may um, bring, just bring your Bible, which is probably what I'll do. And then this is just a, a reference up here. Um, so like I said, I know you can't see it, uh, all of you. But let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, thank you for Luke. Thank you that he was willing to take all that time to be so precise and to write down for us things that happened so long ago. And Lord, the, the scripture is the word that we feed on. It's what we need. I pray that you help us to receive it by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, so we start right off with, uh, this is after the baptism. And Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. So one thing I want to note, the Spirit leads him into this. We have a couple chapters till we get to the prayer that we just prayed, which is lead us not into temptation, which will give me a couple weeks to figure out what that means if the Spirit just led him into temptation. But that'll be my work for the next couple weeks. In this case, he leads them right into temptation. So one of the observations I can make is that God is allowing us to live in a world where we may be tempted. He's allowing us to live in it. And it must provide some greater good, the fact that that is a possibility. There's a risk involved. And all of you could give examples of people who have chosen temptation and absolutely trashed their lives. And yet, this is something that God's going to allow tomorrow, is that we can enter into temptation. So, wilderness. Like, taking you into the wilderness, think about it for a little bit. Would you be more tempted to be, I mean, the wilderness seems like a place where you wouldn't be tempted very much. I mean, really, what can you get in trouble doing? You know, we were in New York last weekend and we went to Times Square and walking around the city. It's like, you know, there's a lot of things I could be tempted like right here in New York. So why not send Jesus to the big city? Why not send him? Why send him to the wilderness? And um, one time, well, no, it was a couple hundred years after Jesus, there was a, a season where um, as many of you know, the first three centuries, on and off, Christians were persecuted. Some of it was really rough. And then uh, around 300, a new emperor came to town, and his, his name was Constantine, and he had this dramatic conversion after a battle. And then almost everybody was a Christian, it seemed, nominally Christian. So in the early 300s, the, the, the strong believers started saying, we got to get out of here. We need to go somewhere, and they went into the desert, thinking that that would get them away from temptation. But what they found was, your temptation comes with you. And so two guys might be in separate huts, 
but one guy had a spoon. The other guy didn't have a spoon. And he's thinking, man, I wish I had a spoon. My life would be a lot better with the spoon. You know, the human, no matter how small we make our kingdoms, we can think of something more we need. They're just one more thing. I think it was Rockefeller when they asked him what he needed. He said just one more dollar. You know, so um, temptation is out there, and it's in the desert. So that's where Jesus is. He's tempted in the desert for 40 days. He fasts. I don't know if any of you have done, like, long fasts like that. They do clarify your mind, um, but it brings other things sharper into focus, and you see some of your, um, you just see things more clearly. So he's alone. One of the things that we can note is that we are more susceptible when we're alone. Um, That's something that, that as a Christian fellowship, we should encourage each other to talk because that's where the temptation comes. And then, um, you know, he warns them, and the devil says, if you are the son of God. So there's an if there. Satan always combines a little truth with a little lie, brings a little doubt, and he says, turn this stone to become bread. Now, as an example, I don't expect Satan to tempt me with that, um, turning a stone into bread, but uh, that's something Jesus could have done easily. And he says, but it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So that's why we're here in the morning, once a month, um, once a week, sorry, we're going to come in here and feed on the word of God. So the word's what we need. Chase, you want to flip it over? So then, um, so then there's another temptation that comes up, and he takes them to a high mountain, shows them the kingdoms, said, all this I give to you, just bow down and worship me. But I'll give it to you and their glory. So this is the time of the Roman Empire and glory of marching down and Caesar giving you the wreath. I mean, all people staring at you as you march down. And that's, that's what people wanted, glory. People to, to nod to what you wanted them to do. And I want to stop. We don't have that potential um, I'm doubting, you know, I'm going to have that moment where I march down and everyone is just like, oh, you're the greatest, you know. But glory can happen in different ways. So I'm going to take us to, and what we'll do, I'll mention the passages in the Old Testament that I'm going to, and you can come up and ask me afterwards if you don't want to flip. But this one is from Jeremiah 9, and it talks about some glory issues. And it talks about how humans glory. And so... I'll read it for those of you that, um, that don't necessarily want to turn there right now. But um, it goes like this. It says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, nor the mighty man in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. So there's three things we're not supposed to glory in. Wisdom, might, and riches. And you could look at it as like brain's body bank. Okay? You're not supposed to glory in that. So I told you I didn't grow up as a Christian. The example that I'm going to give, I'm not recommending you, like your kids go out and do what I did, but that's the best one I can come up with. You're welcome to come up with a better one and tell me. But it has to do with rolling joints of marijuana, okay? So you probably won't hear this illustration in other churches. Um, but 
it's the best one I got. So I think human beings, like I remember I worked in this restaurant and afterwards everybody would take their tip money and buy drugs. And so it was the first time I'd really seen people roll joints of marijuana before and I was surprised at how small the cigarettes were, you know. So what struck me as particularly funny was when they rolled it and they would like suck on it, their faces got really contorted as they were sucking, trying to get the air through that little hole. So, you know, that was the picture I had. Well, um, I think human beings take glory hits off of other people. And we're in a middle school cafeteria, so this is where this is like, you'll get it, right? If you're a brains, is your thing that you take glory hits? Because you have to, you can only take glory hits if you're better than the surrounding people, okay? So if you're in class, they turn your test back upside down. You get a 98. You know it. Um, but you need a glory hit. But you have last name ends with a W, and you're way in the back. And there's only one kid next to you, a kid you never talked to. And you know that kid got a D or worse, because he always does. And he's slumping in his chair. But you need a glory hit. He's the only one there. So you look over. Now, can you come right out and show him your paper? No. What do you have to do? You got to ask him how he did. How'd you do? Uh, 68. And then there's this silence. And there's this huge force that's forcing him to do something he doesn't want to do either, which is what? Ask you how you did. He's like, how you did? And you're like, ah, I only got a 98. I blew that last one. You know, glory hit. And then out in the hallway, look for some more hits. What if your, um, if body is your thing? And guys can do it if you've ever seen them working out and the guys get really good at looking themselves off of multiple mirrors, you know, to see how their triceps are going when they're waiting, li lifting weights. I've seen it. Um, can anyone else nod? Have you seen yeah, so guys are that way. So, I, so I'm not picking on the girls, but this is a good one. So let's say you're a middle school girl and you're going to a party um, and you want to know if this guy's going to notice you and the party's in a certain room. You need, you don't go in yourself. You don't, you send scouts in first to locate where he is. And then you go in and you do your, your parade um, around one loop and go back out. Now you don't look directly at the guy, right? Your scouts are supposed to do that. And you get back out and then the scouts tell you. Glory hit for the body thing, right? The money one's easy, you know, we can figure out how to do that. But left to our own devices, humans are taking glory hits all the time. And, and you can do it as a parent of an athlete. Like if your kid's playing, you know, let's say lacrosse or something, and your kid's the leading scorer, you know, and, and it's a blowout, so he only scores three or four goals and they pull him out. End of the game, you want a glory hit for your kid. You're standing on the sideline. The only other dad is the dad of the kid who gets in the last minute, you know and you're trying to get a hit, and there's no one else around. So you say, um, hey, which one's your kid? Number 10 is like, oh, he did really well. He really hustled. And then it's quiet, and the other dad knows who your kid is, because everybody else does too, and has to say, oh, how'd your son do? And you're like, oh, he only got four goals. His hamstrings bother him a little bit, but you know. Glory hit, we can do it. So he's saying, don't do that. That's what Satan's offer is to take glory hits from other humans. You can do it for how your kids behave. You can do it for how your yard looks. I mean, we are rolling joints all over the place if we don't watch out. 
And that's what Satan offers. So I'm not saying anyone in here has rolled a joint figuratively or literally, but as you go forth this week, just note that it's, it's a possibility out there. And, and Jesus turns it down. He says, no, you know, uh, get behind me. You're only supposed to worship God. You're not supposed to get other people to worship you or worship other people. All right, so then they're on to the next temptation. All right, so then he brings him to this pinnacle idea. And so for pinnacle for me, I think the pinnacle was, you know how the temple, uh, it, it had four corners. I'm thinking it was one of the corners. There's like a trumpeter's stone that they still have the stone. I saw a picture of it. So I think it was more of a corner, and there's one corner that overlooks a valley. So I'm thinking that's where this was. But again, he's, um, you know, he, call, he quotes Psalm 91. And you may want to go there because it, it later, but some of the lines in there, uh, Satan uses part of it. He knows the scripture, and he emphasizes, the, look, they're going to catch you kind of thing. But there's a lot of contingencies in Psalm 91 where he says, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High, then you get this kind of protection. It says, because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, he will give his angels charge over you. Satan's leaving that first part out. Um, because you, he has set your, lo your love upon me, God, I will deliver him. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. So Satan's leaving out the priority of God in this. It's just, well, he's going to do it. And uh, Jesus picks up on the just don't tempt God. It's from Deuteronomy 6. You know, just, just don't, don't do that, you know. You've got to worship God. You've got to trust him. You can't put him to the test. And, um, you know, when you're coming, even like I said, middle school, you hit those things in life. Like if Jesus loves me, why can't I get my locker open? You know, there are just some things where you're thinking this shouldn't happen to me as a Jesus follower. Last month, I've never had root canals before. I had two in like two week period. If Jesus loves me, why am I laying there with this guy going, you know, this shouldn't happen, right? Well, we hit things that our challenges and keeping our focus on the Lord is the key thing. I mean, we're here not not for uh, proving God's love to us. We are not here for uh, getting glory for others. We are here to worship the Lord. So you can move to the next um, the next slide, Chase. So from this, he goes out, and then this is when the ministry starts in Galilee, and he teaches in the synagogues. So I want you to think about this. Can anybody, you can tell me afterwards, think of where in the Old Testament uh, the believers are, or the Jews are, are commanded to build synagogues? I don't think it's in there. I haven't seen it. It seems to be something that emerged uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus. So a couple things we can note here. I'm not saying we're going to like come up with some other way of doing church or anything like that, but I do want to note that God blesses the efforts of his people. These synagogues were, were small, 30 by 30 maybe, and they were set up so that people could focus on the word. And like I said, it's not, I don't think it's commanded in scripture to do this. They did it, and I think it's interesting that Jesus honors it. He inhabits this, this concept that the Jews came up with. And he says, okay, I can use that. I'm going to go around and do that. And I think that gives us some freedom in the way um, we go about furthering his kingdom. I think there's creativity. 
There's more things we can do about the way to follow the Lord. It's not just repeat the same thing over and over again. We're, we're allowed to come up with new forms in accordance with the word and the spirit. And Jesus didn't go around, hey, this is, you got, look, close this thing. Shut it down, tear it down. It's not in the scripture. No, he honored it because what were they trying to do? They were trying to study the word. Now, he's in Nazareth, um, small town, anywhere from 500 to 2,000 people. One thing you might not know about it, they had soft stone underneath them, and they would dig these little pits as places they would store stuff. And it wasn't on a travel route. It was really not anywhere special um, where he ends up. So he, he goes in the synagogue as his custom was. So I want you to think about something, because they get surprised at what he knows. Remember when he goes to the temple as a, um, as a kid, and he astounds the teachers in Jerusalem? Well, then he comes back. So this is a good 15, 18 years where he's coming back, and he's going to read, and you'll see that they're surprised a little bit. But several of you are teachers. You know who a sharp kid is in your class. It, it seems that Jesus didn't demonstrate his wisdom to them. You know, it's just, if you knew that somebody that smart was just sitting in the synagogue, you might ask them questions. And, and it, it was his custom. He went in there. Uh, he memorized the scripture. He learned the Old Testament. He didn't just get to wake up one morning and know it all. I'm sure that he had to memorize it like everybody else. And so this was his custom. It puts importance on a couple things. One, regularly gathering with people to study the scripture. We have the opportunity as a church to do something analogous to what I would say is if you were in your 40s or 50s and could go back to your 20s and have two little kids, what would you go back and focus on? You wouldn't sweat the small stuff. You'd focus on the important stuff. We as a church, after, what, 34 years, get to go back and do the basic. We're getting to, to go back and almost be like a church plant. And so this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend time gathering, studying the scripture. And um, in the middle of the announcements, if you flip over the outline, I have some going deeper questions. We'll see what you guys want to do with it. We could be doing... Um, studies on Luke. We could look at them in the fall. You could write some things down. We could get together and talk about what you've learned from the scripture. This is what we're supposed to eat. This is what we're supposed to feed on. And I'll also note that Jesus honors the Sabbath. He comes and he honors the Sabbath. And I don't know, um, I would say that they're saying the average American Christian is going to church like 2.2 times a, a month. Um, maybe it's three, but those are important times. And more and more, there are other things that you could go do. There just are. But by you coming and stopping for an hour, probably an hour and 15 minutes will probably be our services, you're saying this is, I'm, this is putting the Lord first, and this is setting aside time to eat the word of God and to worship the Lord. So that's, um, that's another thing we can pick up. So then go ahead, Chase. So then he reads this, and, and it's familiar to most of you, I'm sure, if not all of you. It's from Isaiah. And if you turn to Isaiah 61, and, and if you are going to turn to just one thing, um, turn to this one, because it's the big one. And, um, 
And I think Donnie loves in here, right? Um, he brought something up, you know, on the teaching team to remind us that whenever Jesus focuses on an Old Testament passage, we should camp out there and try to go a little bit deeper. Because if Jesus thought enough to read this one the first time that he's talking to his hometown group, we might want to read it over a few times. We might even want to go read the whole chapter. So this is from 61, and he emphasizes uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he's been anointed. Okay, so that has that picture of Messiah. And then there's some things that he's going to do. And then in the following chapters of Luke, we're going to see if he actually does them. He's preaching to the poor. He's healing the brokenhearted. He's proclaiming liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty all those who are oppressed, and proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. So one of the things that uh, year of Jubilee he may be referring to in Leviticus 25, where after 50 years is year of Jubilee, that everything gets set right again. That's what we need. <laughs> we, would, we need things to be set right again. And there's a picture of what a king should be. And if you were here two weeks ago and I read the list at the beginning of Luke 3, they li he lists a lot of leaders, and these were not good guys. It was miserable to be under their rule. And they are expecting a Messiah to come. It's understandably unclear exactly what that Messiah is going to be all about. I know you guys have seen the prophecies. Some of it's a little unclear. Prophecy by its nature has a little bit of unclarity to it. And they were pondering what does it mean, and they were expecting a king to come. And that's why kicking out the Romans was something big that they expected. But Isaiah emphasizes the idea of this servant, this suffering servant. And I think it's interesting that he stops. If any of you are in Isaiah 61 right now, and you're in verse 2, you'll notice that he stops. He says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the last one in the quote. And the next line says, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't say that one. Now, it's an argument from silence, and I always want to be careful about putting that out there. But it's an argument from silence. But he doesn't say that one, and I am wondering why he stopped. And it brings a pause point to humanity. God is coming back with his vengeance. This scripture is teaching us that Satan is real, that sin is real, and we believe Jesus is coming back, and he is going to set everything straight. But there's this pause point where rather than march in and take over and establish a new rule right there, kick Pilate out, straighten Herod out, or kick him out, you know, all of that, he comes in as a suffering servant to do things that you wouldn't expect a king or a ruler, and certainly they wouldn't have had that expectation from any of their existing rulers, that somebody would come in and heal the brokenhearted. And as it goes further in Isaiah, there's this beautiful picture in verse 3 where it says that they, the people, may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. He's coming to heal these up, so that people can become trees of righteousness. Some of your versions will say oaks of righteousness. We are to be trees. We are to be 
pulled out of the mourning, the captivity that we have to sin, the brokenheartedness because of sin that's been done to us. We are supposed to step out of that captivity to become these trees of righteousness. What a beautiful picture of us just being like that Psalm 1, a tree planted by the, the, the river there, the water just coming up, that we are trees of righteousness in a world that desperately needs us. But we need nutrition to do it. And the studying of the word and the gathering as a, as a simple body like this is what God ordained by the work of his spirit to nourish us. And when that happens, you're going to be able, it goes further in Isaiah, rebuild old ruins. The world's been around for a long time. There's a lot of broken things. Nobody stepping into leadership on this world gets to step into day zero. You inherit a lot of stuff from before, but we're supposed to be trees of righteousness. So the last thing in there, he closes the book, gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down, and he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And those that witnessed him marveled at these words. Remember how uh, I must, he must have been quiet because he'd been around for a good 18, 15 years since the time in the temple. He must not have been sharing that much or they wouldn't have marveled. So he chooses now to reveal it. And they don't like it, you know, and, and they don't accept it. And they reject his offering as this Messiah that's going to come in and do these things. We have the potential of doing the same thing in our world today, rejecting this Messiah that wants to come because he doesn't look like what we expected him to look like. He's not doing in our lives the things we wanted him to do. Therefore, we don't want to follow him. We don't trust him that maybe what they say, the scripture says about sin's really true. We give in to that temptation. We need to hang in there. We need to seek the Lord. We need to draw close to him and trust that as we trust in this Messiah, he's going to do more than just save us from our sins so that we are with him for all eternity, which I am very much looking forward to. We each need to be at that point where we do come to the cross and either put our faith in Jesus or we don't. But as you pass that point, are you still inviting him into these things to heal up the broken? New heartaches come as we are humans. New things you can experience. And God has created a world where those things are possible with the hopes that we will draw closer to him. So let me pray for us. Um, Kirsten, did you want to pray for everybody? Um, so then, Lucas, if you want to come up, uh, Kirsten's going to pray for those different areas um, in your life, and then I'll give a few announcements. Okay. Just pray with me, please. Um. Father God, for some of us here today, some of us can resonate with feeling brokenhearted or in captivity, maybe to anxiety, just unbearable stress, worry. Some of us may not know you at all. God, would you meet us in this place? Would you speak to us? I thank you, God, that we can ask you to speak to us, to speak words to us, to give us pictures that you are in conversation with us. You're not a distant God we learn facts about, but you're a God who's right here with us. For those of us, God, that you've brought great healing and light already into our lives, would you awaken our souls to look around and to have childlike faith? 
Some of us have been walking with you for a long time, and we might be a little weary and tired of some of the hard things we've seen. And we need to be reminded that you are still at work. Would you give us eyes to see those who can't see? Would you give us hearts for those who are brokenhearted? And would you prompt us and move us, God, to reach out, to expect that you might use each one of us to bring someone to yourself, to bring someone to greater healing? God, would you protect us as we're facing temptation at every side and every turn? We can't walk this road of faith alone, and we can't do it in our own strength. We need your Holy Spirit, the counselor. God, and if there's anyone here who needs to know you for the first time, would you give them courage to come and find someone to pray with? Would you give them courage right now to invite you, Jesus, into their lives? Just a simple prayer to say, I need you, Jesus. We bless your name, God. We thank you for letting us walk with you. Thank you for the invitation to know you. In your son's mighty name we pray, amen.